Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Tonight, on behalf of the Royal Academy of Arts and the London Original Print Fair, I'm delighted to welcome the acclaimed photographer and artist Miles Aldridge, who will be in conversation with writer and art critic Hetty Judah for our annual event. Miles Aldridge's photographs have appeared in museum and gallery exhibitions worldwide, including a major retrospective of his work entitled I Only Want You to Love Me at Somerset House in 2013. In 2014, he was invited by Tate Britain to create a photographic installation entitled Carousel 2 as a response to Mark Gertler's 1916 painting Merry-Go-Round. There are several monographs of his work, including Pictures for Photographs 2009, Other Pictures 2012, and Please Return Polaroid 2016, which chronicles his creative process through the use of Polaroids. Miles' portraits of Viola Davis and the Game of Thrones cast were amongst those selected by Time magazines for their best portraits of 2017. He has works in permanent collections of the British Museum, the National Portrait Gallery, and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, and the International, International Centre of Photography in New York. Writer Hetty Judah is chief art critic for The Eye and a regular contributor to Numero Art, The Guardian, Garage, Freeze, Artnet, Art Quarterly, The New York Times, and T Magazine Online. She is contributing author to numerous books, including the forthcoming Vitamin T, published by Faden 2019, Space Shifters, Hayward Publishing 2018. This evening, the pair will be discussing Miles's career and his newly launched project. So without further ado, please welcome Miles Aldrich and Hetty Judah. Miles, it's very lovely to be here with you this evening. Um, we had a very fun chat at your studio earlier in the week, which I'd love to bring up later in the conversation. Um, but I just wanted to start off by talking a little about how you got into photography, because you didn't train in photography, did you? You trained in, was it illustration? Yeah, graphics? yeah. Um, I went to art school fully intending to kind of uh, be an illustrator, and uh, my father was a, a, a very well-known, uh, legendary, in fact, uh, illustrator from the 60s and 70s. And, you know, all my sort of childhood, I only imagined that I would sort of follow my father's footsteps and do uh, designs for Penguin book covers, uh, which we'll pick up with later with Harlan Miller, I think. Um, so, I was a con in a way a complete shock to me that I uh, sort of woke up as a photographer one day, um, which uh, only really happened because of sort of a revolution in photography that occurred in sort of like the very early 90s uh, with magazines like The Face and ID that kind of promoted um, Championed this thing called grunge photography, which the essence of grunge was that um, as long as you were not a professional model, hairdresser, makeup artist, or photographer, you could do, you could work in this magazine. So, and because I was literally uh, not uh, interested to be a photographer, but happened to have a girlfriend who wanted to model, and she again wasn't a model. It was all a kind of, uh, everything kind of came together in this sort of perfect storm of, um, uh, you know, I, I found myself in the pages of uh, The Face and ID, but also, more interestingly, in America, Dublin Magazine, and then, um, very, very importantly, uh, with Vogue Italia, and I started working with them. So it was kind of like, once you've done one of those magazines, 
you then got the phone call and they wanted one and they so forth and so forth. So it, it, it grew exponentially, uh, very, very quickly. Uh, actually, my first projects were for The Guardian. Uh, I went to meet The Guardian uh, art director and she said, uh, oh, oh, well, we'd love to do a story with you. And I said, a story? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not very good at writing. And then I realized, you know, this was kind of the common vernacular for a series of fashion photos. And then I kind of, you know, was relieved I could actually do that. And she said, well, we do two a day, do two shoots a day. So um, we do one in the morning, then we have lunch, and do another shoot. So I had to do that. And that was quite surprising and unusual. But yeah, I, I, I fell into it. And obviously, this is early 90s. This is way before digital photography. Um, I was always kind of amazed that a picture came out because I really had bluffed my way into this business. Because you come from, you've been making music and you also started making music videos, haven't you, as well? So you had some kind of film. Yeah, I, I had an ambition to be a film director. I still do, uh, comes and goes. Uh, but that ambition to be a film director, I sort of, on, on, on the back of a beer mat, I think I, sort of, I figured out my career that I could, if, I, if, I, if the end point was to be a film director, maybe I could be a photographer at some point, and that would, you know, because it's, photographic imagery could lead to somehow to being a film director. But of course, the thing I didn't realize when I was in that pub writing that sort of that diagram of my life uh, or career, uh, you know, I have no talent for telling stories. Uh, well, you may differ, but I have a talent for hinting at a story, but for telling a complete story that has a, a, what they call in Hollywood an arc. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I have the talent for that. So while aiming at that sort of uh, ambition to be director, um, I sort of found myself taking photographs that look like film stills. Well, can we look at a couple of them now? Sure. Because, I mean, sure. that was something else I wanted to ask you about, because clearly at a certain point you shifted from just being a camera for hire, yeah. you know, yeah. an able yeah. photographer that could do what a publication asked of you, and you really started developing a very distinctive personal style, we've got obviously these wonderful overheated colours, but there's also this feeling that you, you are, as you say, partway through a movie. There's this sense that there's narrative unfolding that you're not necessarily party to. And how did, how did you manage to get to the point where you suddenly went, actually I'm enjoying this and I really know what I want to do with it and it's not what you're asking me to do but I'm going to push for it. Um. Well, I started working for Vogue Italia with um, sort of the legendary editor-in-chief, Franca Sozzani. Um, she was incredibly uh, encouraging for photographers to do what they were good at. And she didn't like it when photographers presented ideas that weren't necessarily their thing. I think that's why if you look at her magazine or the tenure of her work for 20 years there, you get you know these great Peter Lindbergh stories and these great Power of Versa stories and these great Bruce Weber stories because they really stuck to their guns. And she was very much the reason why they built a strong signature. So she was sort of in a way <clears throat> I used to joke with her that she was like you know the, the Medici's and I was the young artist trying to get my work on her scene. Um, so the only way to do that was really to kind of like have a signature and to bring a signature. So Vogue Italia, um, and it's an interesting story that she told me actually that 
the reason that Vogitalia had such a strong visual language, such a strong visual signature, was because it was an Italian. And she realized very early on that in order to compete with the world and compete with the, the, you know, the American magazines and the British magazines, that it had to work on a purely visual basis. So, you know, that was my, that was my Medici, that was my commissioner, that was my uh, reason for you know, taking photographs. And that propelled me and pushed me to create a distinctive style that, um, you know, that I could, uh, that was very, very strict and, and controlled, but at the same time was incredibly wide and broad. And I could, I could express many ideas through a very strict style. But you then did actually do the thing that you thought the Guardian was asking you to do, which to an extent was telling stories, that there is this, this idea that you've, you've, you've caught something unfolding. Yeah. Which is, there's always something bigger than the photograph. Yeah, I, um, I started to kind of, you know, having these ambitions to be a director, I started to play with this idea of the, of the the model, not as a model, but as an actress, as a protagonist in the story of what's happening. And, uh, you know, uh, because I'm interested in cinema and theatre, I, you know, I read quite a lot about theatre and directing and so forth. And I kind of came up with this this, uh, this thing that theatre people talk about, which is called In Medea Res, which means in the middle of the action. So you begin a play in Medea Res, in the middle of the action. So it's a group statement. So I like this idea that my, you know, when you turn the page of Vogue, you were in the middle of the action. It was all kind of happened right there. You didn't need to build the story. It was uh, you know, kind of you know, suddenly you're falling into this new universe. Um, and so with that mentality, I started to, um, well, I went back to what I was originally planning to do, which was illustration. By doing drawings, I could do like a little storyboard and plan and, and, and conceive you know, the beginning of the story, the middle of the story, the end of the story. Um, and I could conceive uh, a close-up. I could conceive a wide shot, uh, what you might call a, a, an establishing shot, you know. And so sort of playing with these kind of cinematic and theatrical conceits, I was able to create a, a visual language that worked for my, um, for my heroines, my stories. And so, um, Yes, so that's a that's one of my sketches um, in the spirit, as I say, of a storyboard uh, to create the photograph, which is that photograph. So somehow, when I was sketching that, I I did feel, even though the, even though the drawing is not particularly good, it was kind of, I mean, in a way, it was never really meant to be shown. Certainly not at the Royal Academy. <laughs> um, but it, it was more the idea that somehow when I was drawing that I thought there's some tension there this woman lighting a cigarette off the domestic kitchen stove there's some dimension of antagonism of uh, strangeness and I think I can make a photograph of this but by drawing it it helped me kind of imagine the picture what it also did was it helped me communicate to my team the hairdresser the makeup artist set design prop styles, what I kind of needed for this picture. So in that respect, I was working rather like, a, again, like a director, kind of having a brief and, and showing people uh, what I needed to get this picture right. Um, 
I mean, just, just before we go straight into this gorgeous lot of sketches and Polaroids that I know we've got coming up, um, I just wanted to briefly go back a little to the wonderful Andromeda and, and uh, the St. Teresa and her yeah. ecstasy and all of these gorgeous figures here, because when I went to your studio the other day and you turned up a little bit late because you were overseeing the printing of some works, I had a good snoop around your library, uh -huh. uh, which is just, I mean, it's wonderful. And it's so organized, it's practically Dewey Decimal System. I mean, there's, you know, alphabetically by, alphabetically yeah. by you know, uh, paintings, by photography, by film, by yeah. graphic design. And your knowledge and interest in art history is very broad and very deep. I mean, you had multiple volumes on individual artists. and it's extraordinary how um, directly you actually translate some quite um, unpredictable, I'd say, uh, elements from mm. your art historical interests into your photography. We were just talking before everyone came in about this Time magazine shoot, which um, drew on Cranach and Dura. I mm. think he, he photographed the cast of Game of Thrones in the style of Dura and Cranach, and it looked absolutely extraordinary, but it probably wasn't what Time was expecting, I imagine. How do you how do you make those connections and suddenly go yeah I'll get the police you know, dressed like a Cranach Madonna yeah yeah um, <clears throat> we we don't have those images but they, they, it's true these ones are kind of they're all of that same ilk that they're kind of riffing on you know kind of playing jazz rhythms on sort of Renaissance and um, yeah Northern Renaissance work as well um, I, I mean I'm I always love this idea of being, um, you know, a sort of a lover of art, like a, a kind of uh, an, an amateur. If you mean, if you mean what I mean, meaning that you sort of love it, you know, that you're obsessed by um, painting. I, I mean, I really am, and uh, I'm lucky that I can kind of draw on those obsessions and sort of see if they'll they'll work. What was interesting about shooting the Game of Thrones in Los Angeles is that I had, as you say, uh, conceived this. Project, this series of portraits is kind of homages to Lucas Cranach and Albrecht Dürer, meaning that they were quite stiff, very precise, and quite cold light on, the, on, on them, and definitely no, no emotion in the face. And in fact, even more, I prefer the subject to be quite uncomfortable, um, so that they kind of sort of un unsettling quality to them. I don't want to be relaxed. Because to me, relaxed is too much like every. It's too much the language of real photography. Meaning, the, the language of real photography, that I understand it from the history of photography from the, in magazines, particularly, is that we're all having a great time and this is really nice and we're all going to take a nice picture of everyone looking lovely. You know, to me, that is anathema to what I want to achieve in my work. Because when I see those pictures, I turn the page really rapidly and, until I find something more uh, surprising, shocking. So I, I, I've always aimed at something that's a little bit more uh, acidic in its, um, both in its production, how it's made, but also how it looks. So I think two things go hand in hand. Um, but what was really, I mean, it's just a weird coincidence, but when I flew to Los Angeles to shoot the Game of Thrones uh, actresses, uh, and I had these thoughts of Albert Dürer and um, Lucas Cranach in my head. I do what I, I typically do when I go to a foreign country is I find the nearest museum to get some kind of uh, regeneration, some new, new inspiration. And I got to the uh, LA County Museum of Art 
and there unbelievably was the, the biggest overview of Lucas Cranach and Albert Dura on display. And I just it was sort of like it was such a weird message from uh, I don't know from whom <laughs> someone someone upstairs. And uh, it was like, yeah, this is like okay, this is, this makes sense. And so I went with that, you know. And then my hotel room at the uh, the Chateau Marmont was completely covered with postcards and photocopies and sketches from Lucas That was that's how I worked really. I sort of just get very um, absorbed in my subject. So that you know, when I'm confronted, is it do you hold the flower like this or like this? I know it should be this way, you know, from researching the paintings. It's all those details. It's something that Lucian Freud said, I remember reading about him once saying that, you know, the more you look at things, the more deeply you look at things, the more you study things, the weirder they become. And that's what I believe in too. And of course with the camera, it's the most incredible looking device. It's like a giant eye, you know, with a German lens ground to kind of insane perfection, you know, focusing and focusing and focusing on somebody's fingernails. And that's the more, you know, the more you can do if, like me, you want the world to be presented as more interesting than just kind of relaxed and easy, then this, 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 this machine, the camera, is a good way of doing it. Well, shall we look a little bit at all of this work that goes into presenting something to this giant eye? <laughs> um, because the, your productions are quite something, you know, they're on a kind of cinematic level, really. Yeah, well, so that's, I mean, that just shows, that's a sketch of this egg uh, with a cigarette stuck down and then that, that I did uh, for Vogue Italia as well. Um, I mean, I suppose that just shows you that it's kind of, sorry, that it's very well kind of orchestrated and conceived as not just a kind of casual moment. And I think you were saying when we chatted in the studio that you actually showed the sketches to the editors on the magazines. So that was how you communicated your ideas. Yes, yeah. and that, that did give me quite a lot of power actually. Because uh, when I started photography, as I said, I started as a complete bluffer. I just fell into it. And it was like, oh, are you the photographer? Right, come get in here and take these pictures. So, yeah, okay. Uh, but, you know, really, uh, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't do what photographers typically do, which is uh, called testing. I didn't do any tests. I didn't practice. I, I, I just, anyway, I just fell into it. And I was, it was a very lucky moment, and uh, I think uh, more than anything, I was just a very good bluffer and would kind of get through um, each each shoot. But when I, you know, that worked for the first six months, maybe a year. But then when I started to really think I can do something interesting with this situation, then I started doing the drawings, and then the drawings became a way of controlling the shoot because typically, going back when I started. The, you know, I mean, I didn't have any conversation with anyone on the shoot until the model was ready and then I would walk in and take my picture. I would be reading my newspaper until then. So uh, there was no kind of, there was like no thinking at all. It was just, right, the model's ready, in you go. And in a kind of sort of David bailey way, you'd kind of snap around, and, you know, turn the music up um, and um, take, a, take a kind of groovy picture. But then when I decided I was not interested in that anymore, the drawings were a way of kind of saying, right, we're doing this today. It was really like a map, uh, like a, like a, yeah, well, like a roadmap. Mm -hmm. 
And then you've got quite a tight team that you work with that put together the set, the looks, mm. the styling, the, so everything's extremely managed. It is and it isn't. I mean, yeah, there's there's management, but at the same time, there's a lovely. I mean, I, I'm lucky. I work with really great people at every level of my work, whether it's the, um, you know, the set people or the hairdresser, makeup and the people I work with in post production. Um, they all, you know, I I think one of my great talents, if I have any, is that I'm very open and I listen to people. Believe it or not, that doesn't maybe add up to what I've just been saying, but I think. Um, I know, I do, you know, like, so when, when the hairdresser puts like a, a bright green wig on the model and says, I think this is a great idea, I take him very seriously and I'm happy to follow him and uh, I'm also happy to take the credit for it too. But, you know, I mean, it, 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 is, it, is, it is a talent to be able to listen to people and to kind of go, you know what, that guy's, he's, he's got something. And, you know, this, that business, is, as, you know, as bad as it, it is, and, yeah, the fashion business is really a lot of things that are wrong with it. It is an incredible reservoir of brilliant people who, you know, if you find them, because a lot of people who are not great, but if you find them in that business, there are people who have great talent for, you know, like amazing aesthetics, amazing history, knowledge of history of fashion, history of history of women, history of women in movies, you know, and they're like, you know, I work with great stylists and they'll just kind of come in and move something around. You know, they are just making my my picture beautiful. You know, uh, it's just it's so part of the job. You are not an island. You're not a still life photographer. You're not just doing it on your own. You are doing it, and that is, I think, that's where maybe the sort of the, the director thing comes in. Because I think also to be a great director, you would also be smart to listen to your cameraman or your you know your editor or what have you or your continuity person. Well, shall we look through a few more? Because I mean, I think yeah. you've got some wonderful Polaroids. Um, yeah, they are there. Do you think there? Yeah. So you, it's you can suddenly see how much is actually happening there. It's not being tinkered with. It's yeah. You you still shoot on film, I think, don't you? I do. I love shooting on film because it just gives me a. You know, when I started, of course, everyone shot on film, and we all shot on film, and we had a lab, and we all. You know, the way we processed our film and what the film was, was top secret. You know, like that grain, that lack of grain, that contrast, that lack of contrast, you know, whatever it was you, you were interested in. Um, it was a secret formula, you know, of, of, of the way you processed your film. And uh, then when digital came along, it was literally like all of that got thrown out the window and everyone was basically doing, everyone was basically shooting on the same <coughs> film, shooting, processing at the same lab, in the same chemistry. It was kind of, to me, I was like, what the hell is going on? Everyone has just gone crazy. Like, to me, the, um, the texture of the film, the quality of the film, the, the color range of the film is part and parcel of the image. Like, you know, if I watch The Wizard of Oz or Blue Velvet or a Hitchcock film, the way the color is, is part, is the film. It's not like something added on after. So, I mean, I, I stuck out for film against, uh, you know, it was increasingly hard to get film. Um, Kodak, or, you know, they go bust one day and then they kind of like have some money. So, you know, it's not easy to do what I do because you can't buy a camera that shoots on film and you have to buy them on eBay and so forth. So it's just like, it, like the industry has got completely 
blinded by this idea of um, that everything that digital can bring is good. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, very vocal about uh, the qualities of photography using film, and you know, stay, you know, so stay with that approach. So yes, I shoot on film. I, because I shoot on film, then I have to shoot on Polaroids too. Because the Polaroid is a way of previewing the image to see if it would be of any interest and see if it looked light right, see if, if the pose works and, and um, so forth. Which brings us quite neatly onto your first um, set of, well, I think, I guess, from, from the purposes of this talk, your first set of prints, yes. your first set of experiments in yeah. printmaking. Yeah. Because it's partly because you're shooting on film that you are, are able to experiment in this way with printmaking. Yeah, yeah. So, although I like shooting on film, um, I, I've also become slightly, um, in a way, bored of the, uh, or, or um, not, uh, frustrated by the, the sort of the, 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 only, the, the one way that you can print a photograph. So I started to look at photography and see, you know, these art fairs or these photo fairs, particularly Photo London, Paris Photo. Yeah, like thousands and thousands of, of photographs that they're of course the images are all different but the paper uh, and the texture and the quality of the surface is identical and it um, well glossy or slightly satin for example but um, so this kind of mass you know producing a photographic art uh, which is quite new because you know photography since I started 20 years ago has really struggled to be considered an art but now it's pretty much considered an art I think everyone would agree with that but it has had the, the result of this kind of overproduction of artistic photo photography a lot of which I don't particularly like you know and so um, with that in mind I started to ask myself the question why is it that only artists get to play with all these multiple medium or medias, you know, like screen printing or lino cuts or uh, graveur or etching, engraving, you know, do painting, but they can do all these other wonderful things too. And yet photographers, you know, they tend to only reproduce their images in photographic paper, whereas, you know, Andy Warhol or Gerhard Richter could take a photographic image and do it as a screen print and everyone think it was fantastic, you know. So, I started to uh, inquire with um, a screen printer about you know, how we could actually produce um, a photographic image but through screen printing. And my first project is this one, which I did with uh, the painter Harlan Miller. So the idea of the, these images came from I went to Harlan's exhibition at the White Cube, and uh, you know anyone who knows his work uh, knows that it's, it basically does these uh, large fictional uh, well, uh, invented book covers. Yeah, he's very influenced Tinder. by you know, book cover graphics. Isn't yeah. It? In fact, yeah. he said for him one of the odd things about this, one of the lovely things was that he was very influenced by your father's mm. book cover designs. So it felt like this wonderful kind of circularity to it. It so. is very strange, yeah, because so, again, going back to me as a sort of 
ten-year-old boy, my, my, my idea of myself was that I would be doing these book covers that my father had done. And then, you know, this, this friend of mine, Harlan the painter, has been um, kind of riffing on that idea of these uh, book designs, but as paintings. And uh, I think because of the, the fields of colour, they, they, they lend themselves very well to abstract painting. Um, but he always has this sort of wonderful kind of northern wit to his titles. So this one was called... Um, is that in shadows are boogie? There's in shadows are boogie, and I think it's one hell. We've had a we've had a hell of a time getting here, or something like that. Or they're kind of like little word word puns. But I saw his show. And for anyone who doesn't know his work, the the book cover that she's holding, when it's a painting by Harlan, it's about the size of the screen behind us here. They're they're huge, so it's kind of a joke again. Yeah. Taking those back down to a book size—it's quite—it's a yeah. I, I, and I, I asked Harlan what he thought if you know if I could actually take these paintings and produce them back down to books, and, and he liked that idea. And so I actually physically made the books, gave them a spine and a back, and then used them as props in my photographs. Um, and there's a sort of uh, again we can see the uh, the sketches for the ideas, and then the ideas, uh, and the photographs produced, and then. Each of these, this series was produced uh, as screen prints because at that point I was sort of, I say, thinking, you know, it's really nice to kind of not have them as photographs where there's a sort of really predictable texture, but to make the texture of the print, um, you know, printed on watercolor paper with a very kind of heavy dot. Um, it's it's kind of doing what I'm I've been trying to do with the images, which you know, with the images in general, instead of having kind of um, easy photographs, I've tried to have photographs or images that are kind of hard to read or you know, slightly awkward. You know, I said earlier about how I like it when the, the subject just feels awkward and that gives the picture a strangeness. But in the same way, by printing these as screen prints, it stops the eye kind of getting bored because you now see a new texture, a new new surface particularly. Um, and so these yeah. were part of a trilogy of collaborations that yes. you did with artists. So we've got Holland Miller here, and then I think we have Gilbert and George, yeah. which are quite extraordinary. So these were then printed using a completely different technique. Yeah, this is all, again the same sort of period of being, questioning, you know, the, the sort of, the supremacy of the photographic print as a way of uh, showing photographs. And uh, I inquired with a great printmaker who's here today upstairs, uh, a guy called Mike Taylor at Paul's Press. And he'd shown me some photographs, or rather some prints, that he'd done with Matt Collishaw, uh, which were produced as photographer. Uh, photographer is where you take a photographic image and you transfer it to a copper plate. And then it, uh, from there on it becomes an etching. So you ink it up and it goes to a press. And this. Um, analog process, but also this sort of um, surface again was so much more sort of satisfying and uh, inspiring to me uh, as a way of saying when you see them in the flesh rather than here, they kind of have the quality of um, very old fashioned newsprint paper printing. And they look hand they look hand painted and clothes. Yeah, there is some hand painting and there's also some yeah. what they call a la poupe printing for the blocks of colour. So yeah um, 
this project and the one with Harlem were, were, were both collaborations with artists, but both were uh, not only collaborations with artists, but also collaborations with printmakers, where I, I was uh, having conversations, mm -hmm. trying to understand how to kind of bend the medium so I could get something that I wanted. Because I, you know, so in this case, I didn't really want to just do photo reveal, which would be a black and white process only, because of my love of colour, it didn't seem to make sense. And also the role of colour in their work as well. I mean, this, yes. the, what's interesting is how this relates to Gilbert and George's own work, where you have you know, these hot blocks of colour yeah. coming through, and it looks like the stained glass, and that, you know the slightly crude use of colour in that way. Yeah. Well, so it's really playing with their work and them as very much sculptures. So. And the thing about photographing them, because they are you know what they describe as living sculptures themselves, um, and their their own medium is really photography. So the question to myself was, how do you take a picture of Gilbert and George? And it doesn't just look like a Gilbert and George picture. But, um, and I really was worried about that until I clicked the shutter and I saw the picture and I, and I realized it does not look like a Gilbert and George. Again, what I'd done here was apply my ideas of narrative and storytelling to, to them. And so I kind of cooked up this whole idea of uh, a stranger arriving at their home spending the weekend with them. And then the third collaboration is very different indeed. It's mm -hmm. with Maurizio Catalan, and I believe you shot it at his exhibition in Paris. Yes, so these are the Polaroids. Um, I had the pleasure of spending a night in the museum with Maurizio Catalan. And this is just some of the kind of uh, behind the scenes pictures that I took while I was there. But the, the main images are these, and we ended up with these um, incredible pictures. But basically, um, when I was working for Vogue Italia, one of my stylists had uh, told me that she her next project was with uh, Maurizio Catalan for Toilet Paper, which is his magazine. And I said, oh, please tell Maurizio how much I like his magazine, because in the same, in a very similar way to the, you know, my work for Vogue Italia, where I'm taking kind of the glossiness of advertising photography and applying it to rather disturbing images. He has his magazine called Toilet Paper, which is sort of in a way follows a similar aesthetic of um, the, the bizarre but treated as the commercial. You know, kind of. anyway, out of the blue, I got this email from him saying, thank you so much for the compliments, we love your work, and maybe we could do something together, blah, blah, blah. And uh, two, or three late, two or three years later, I had another email from him and he said, look, I have an exhibition in Paris, why don't you um, come and we can do some pictures there together. And so it was arranged that I would arrive at 7 p.m. with my team. I met him there for the first time and we spent the night working together in the museum, uh, basically you know, riffing on his, his sculptures. I mean, it's very, the, the naughtiness of the whole thing is very much in his spirit. So this was all done in one night, Yeah, which is extraordinary. Um, and you have a new series, which is on show upstairs. Yes. Uh, which again is screen prints. Um, if you look at them, they are absolutely extraordinary. They've got blocked bits of yeah. metallic silver on them. Yes. Yeah. And the, the, just the, the depth and complexity of the printing, is, it's, it's kind of hard to believe they're actually screen prints. Thank you. Well, my screen printer, uh, you know, he was convinced they could, would never work and I spent many long, arduous hours with him, trying to convince him to do them, um, and tearing what was left of his hair out, you know. Um, but 
After the three collaborations, I wanted to sort of see, which were all very successful in their own way, whether critically or you know through galleries. Uh, I wanted to see if I could do something now without an artist to kind of prop me up. Um, so I created this project, which is called New Utopias, um, and took the screen printing process to, uh, you know, what many people who know about screen printing would say, uh, beyond what's possible with screen print, because um, a screen print is printing bright blue, bright, vivid purple, bright yellow and black, those four colours, and making skin colours, you know, making the subtleties, and that is, in a way, it's beyond what screen printing is meant to do, and I just met a screen printer today who's been working for 30 years, and uh, he told me about what he was doing, I said, yes, but could you do that? He said, no, I couldn't, actually. And it's really, it's, it's beyond what the, the it's beyond what the machine is allowed, is meant to be able to do. Um, but I, I just realised we should clarify that's not one of the images. That's not a screen <laughs> That's one that's of my drawings. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. What's it going on about? <laughs> so, here are some of my drawings in preparation of this project. So yeah, let's see. you were quite right. Let's get. So here's is the first one. So this is this is one of the the, the, the new utopia. Uh, screen prints, which is upstairs, and that's about the size it actually is, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is actually yeah. pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So that uh, whole toaster's blocked off. It's blocked off in silver. Yes, exactly. So the whole image is printed in these four colours I just described, and yeah. um, but broken down into some incredible dots, which blend subtly and create skin, fingernails, toast, what have you. And then there is, so there, that's the first four colours. Then the fifth colour is the yellow that goes on as a block behind her. The sixth colour is a block of silver ink that goes behind the whole toaster. And the seventh colour is, is the, uh, the black that goes on the so. so it's a very kind of um, in-depth, complex procedure, but it, uh, it's, it's worked brilliantly. Uh, in this case, the, the electric meat carver is has the silver on the uh, the blade. Here is the coffee pot. Here is the hairspray. And here is the orange press. And I mean, <clears throat> these actually were originally published for I think was it Stern magazine. Yeah. Um, and just as we're kind of about to wrap up, I just would like to go full circle back to your relationship with magazines because it's it's almost flipped, hasn't it? So yeah. You're doing less and less fashion photography, less and less commercial. So what's your relationship to magazines now? Uh, well, I mean, I, I have had a pretty good time of it with the magazine, especially Vogue Italia. Um, you know, I was able to really um, do, you know, very challenging images with them. And they gave, they gave me a lot of freedom. Um, the magazines uh, over the last couple of years have really sort of started to become less interesting to me as because they because they are struggling so much with their you know with their audience they don't really know what they you know since the the rise of the internet the rise of social media the point of the magazines has become really vague because 
the magazine, you know, to go back to the point of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar when it, they first started, they really were sort of directional. They really were sort of like to tell people how to dress, how to behave, what paintings to like, what poems to like, these kind of things. They don't have that role anymore because social media can just do that on a daily basis and update. And so I think, you know, if I'm honest, I think the magazines have no real relevance anymore. Uh, and they sort of seem rather like, you know, the Titanic going down very slowly. You know? um, but before they go down, I intend to exploit them. And uh, I'm very happy to use the great models, hairdressers, makeup artists that, that, that work with them to um, do my kind of crazy images. And you know, when a magazine says, look, we'll give you carte blanche, what do you want to do? That's music to my ears because I know I can give them something really exceptional, but at the same time, I'll be able to use those images for my own um, devious means. <laughs> it's very explosive. We, very. Always, we all knew fashion was like that. Really. <laughs> um, I've just got really one final question, which we kind of touched on in this last bit here, which is really about looking at images. Um, we all look at images online. We look at you know Instagram, and we look at all of these glossy magazines presented in iPad editions. Yeah. Why is it still important to print? What's the difference? What you mean to make beautiful screen prints and like Or just any kind of high quality print. I mean as a yeah. as a photographer, what's the difference between seeing your work printed and seeing it as a digital image? Yeah, yeah. Well it's hu hugely important. I mean I was you know, give the example that, you know, if somebody tomorrow painted the Mona Lisa and put it on Instagram, that you would probably look at it for a second and then move on to somebody else's photo of their dinner or what have you, you know. That unfortunately the social media has created a you know really blasé approach to um, consuming images, and so I mean I I felt that anyway about magazines for a long time, and so even within a magazine, I you know would never put that much work into these pictures for magazines if they, if I hadn't been thinking all along that I was going to put them in a gallery because it was seeing them in a gallery or seeing them in a beautiful book really drove me to kind of perfect the images but you know a magazine for me was for a long time just a piece of trash you know. I was surprised when you said how bad you thought the printing was in a lot of magazines as well it was yeah I mean yeah I mean it's hard to look at sometimes because it's it's the cheapest paper and the fastest running machines and they you know they they don't have really much quality control you know, magazines. but so you know I mean I think if if seeing my pictures in the pages of Italian Vogue was the be-all and end-all I probably would have given up a long time ago. But I started exhibiting quite early on in my career and seeing the work enlarged and printed and large and, and put on my gallery wall, you know, just knocks your socks off. It's really exciting, you know, such a buzz for it. So that for me is the real kind of, um, sort of, um, acid test of whether a picture works or not. You know, I, I think Instagram and our, our current way of viewing pictures is not, um, yeah, it's like, I remember, I remember David Lynch fuming about when iPhone started showing films and he was like, well, you're never gonna watch Blue Velvet on a bloody iPhone. But unfortunately people do, you know. <laughs>
Miles, thank you so much. Um, that was really, really entertaining. Was it okay? And, yeah, yeah, fascinating. <laughs> um, if anybody would like to ask Miles something, there's a microphone Or ask you back. something. My question is, like, listening to this conversation, obviously it's an interview and it's like a summary of your uh, past. Um, what I find interesting is that are you breaking away from the convention of you know the print media or or things that were seen as from the generations gone that's how they observed or enjoyed uh, art so as in let's say like you talked about social media as well how do you perceive your work to go forth to a wider audience and not just the niche that's there and what what is there that you envision to mm. see in the future thank you um the wider audience. I mean, I'm always a bit scared of the wider audience because these are the people that one year said they love the Spice Girls, and then you know, four years later, it's the most sort of stupidest band ever. You know what I mean? So I mean, I, I never really want to appeal to a wide, wide audience. Um, I'm happy that I'm really happy that like two or three people like my work. I'm honest to you, because I I don't. I'm not aiming at kind of mass uh, consumption of my images. I'm in a way that would be um, that would be kind of with the ironic. Since I'm protesting against sort of mass consumption of, mass, of you know consumerist images, I'm sort of really I'm in a way I was quite happy being on the outside slightly, looking in, like on the edge of, of the periphery of um, that. Um, I don't have an ambition to be like uh, a gigantic uh, photographer like Maria Testino. But your work is also in museum collections, so it's it is available for a large audience to see. Quite that's a true. Collection, yeah. Like, yeah. But then again, I mean, I, uh, I think that's true. But I, if you talk about sort of um, mass consumption, I, I, I love the idea that someone would go to a museum and see my my pictures. But I don't think it's ever going to be like you know. A queue of people with iPhones, like the Mona Lisa. They just, you know, have, they visit the picture and uh, hopefully they get something from it. And the same here at the, at the art fair. I mean, I, I, I love overhearing people's conversations, looking at the work, and it's, you know, But it's, it, it, I'm not aiming for, uh, you know, kind of trying to convince everyone that this is the only way. If I was to really care about that, I'd probably make loads of mistakes. So I, I feel coming from a very local position, which is my own world, and the truthful world, the truthful world that I live in, which is that you know I, I'm London-born, bred. I'm a photographer that has a studio in London, and that my perspective is from that position only. Um, and if it, if it, you know, I think the themes in my work they have commonality that people, somebody from Finland, could understand. Um, but at the same time, I'm definitely not interested in bending the work to be accessible. And again, having said that, you're on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you do engage with social media yeah, to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah, I have, I have a, a very meager following. <laughs> I find that very hard to believe. Um, do you have any other questions? Last, thank you for showing us these lovely images. Um, Questions. I haven't seen your images uh, before. It, it wasn't clear to me often uh, that a lot of them are commissioned uh, because they're so unique and distinct.
that they initially struck me as simply the images that you wanted to make and that they, they were self-determined projects. Um, could you say a little bit more about that? What proportion of your work has been commissioned and what just self-generated? How do you feel about the difference between those two ways? Thank you. Um, they, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of the work is commissioned, but uh, I arrived in magazines uh, as the magazines were sort of losing power because of the internet. So sort of, the internet arrived and took away all this kind of advertising revenue from the magazines. So the situation was really, instead of, you know, if you look at the archetypal idea of the fashion photographer, you know, sort of the Richard Avedon or David Bailey, Kind of you know going into the uh, the editor in chief's room and sort of saying, well, uh, David or Richard, you know, we, we have all these pink dresses and we need you to photograph these pink dresses. What do you want to do? You know, that's that's what it was like. You know, but when I arrived, they were literally like miles. We've got like twelve pages. What do you want to do? And it was like that. So quite different, really. And uh, so when I started doing the drawings, um, that was what really kind of gave me this control over magazines. So I would go and meet with um, the editor-in-chief and say, I've got this idea. You know, I would typically meet her with like three or four ideas. And she would say yes, yes, and no, or something like that. And we'd, 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 work. we'd work towards those ideas. So I was given incredible liberty to do the pictures I wanted to do. In the end, they just wanted they just wanted pictures that would fill their magazine. And it was kind of a, a, a sort of mutually rewarding situation because I wanted to work with the models and the hairdressers and the makeup artists to do my work. They wanted pictures that, they, that were colorful or you know, shocking, uh, surprising. And so in a way we kind of made a deal, you know, uh, that I would, do, I would fill these pages for them. They would give me the models. They would give me the hairdressers and the makeup artists. And, and everyone would be kind of like happy, but because I started, as I say, because I started exhibiting with galleries quite early on in my career, uh, I, my, I was always driven towards seeing the picture framed on a wall. But I would never have put this much work into the pictures if it was just going to be in a magazine and tossed away the next week. You know? Does that does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I asked quite a similar question, I guess, earlier in the week. One thing that really came up was how important really kind of game editors were because when I mean, you were saying your relationship with Frank Sassani was incredibly important that you had editors that just had the faith to commission something wild and kind of let you do your thing whereas there are still very conservative magazines that are never going to let that happen. No and I think the magazines have become even more conservative over the last couple of years with the, you know, the increased anxiety of social media just taking all of their Revenue and their kind of raison d'etre, that they're just, um, yeah, they're just terrified, really. And I think terror is not a very kind of good uh, ground to to work on. You know, it's just very, very conservative, very sort of like keen to please everyone. You know, in relationship to what you were saying, it's important that you know every. Uh, the world in general understands these pictures, and they don't. The main thing is they don't offend anyone. Um, but of course, you know, we all have different cultural backgrounds, and you know, what might offend one person may not offend another. But if you want to kind of get to a place where you don't offend anyone, you really are in a place of 
extreme mediocrity. Yeah, I mean, just to give a kind of an example, kind of looking at the images we've just seen today, the New York Times wouldn't publish a picture of a nude woman. Mm -hmm. uh, American Vogue, when they did an influencers issue, they uh, airbrushed everyone's tattoos off the cover. Yeah, so there are things that just kind of get removed yeah. from, yeah, so it's quite difficult when you're trying to engage something with a mass, mass audience in that way. More questions, please. Um, I wanted to ask about the, the process that you go through in order to end up at your chosen colour palette. That, that's very interesting. Uh, it's quite simple now. I, uh, I typically, let me find one of these things. I think we can. If we go in this direction. Let's have a look. I do these things, these paintings, weirdly. So, this sort of stuff, you know, kind of just, you know, I, I'm kind of like testing the idea. This, this believe it or not, is, uh, <laughs> is the drawing for that picture. So, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I've, I've come up with the idea, the girl, the lady, is uh, drinking orange juice from the orange machine uh, in this on the floor, and so therefore I've, I've I've got a floor, I've got some cupboards, and I've got the juicer. And what color will they be? And so I literally get out my watercolors and I just paint and try. You know, it could be a red floor with a yellow thing, you know. And eventually you kind of find somewhere. It's it's no no, no more uh, complex than that really. I mean, you, you have the things that you know, like you know the oranges are going to be orange, so then you work around that, but other than that, it's open. All of these things, um, most of the pictures you've seen tonight have been constructed in a studio, so this isn't a kitchen, this is in a, in a, in a film studio um, made by a set designer. So I have, I have the liberty to say, let's do the cupboards blue, let's do the, the floor yellow, you see what I mean? So I'm working like that. So there's elements of like mass control from me, like so I, I have to I have to I have to commit to that way ahead of the shoot. Otherwise, I can't I can't decide that on the shoot. Otherwise, it's too late. But then the things I don't know, and that's why I say, thankfully I work with all these amazing people, is that I don't know that the stylist has brought this incredible suit and this red shirt, uh, or that the hairdresser has brought this incredible orange wig. Yeah. So, um, as I was saying earlier, part of my talent is, is, is listening to people with talent and, and, and going with what they think and trying that. So, you have the things that you've already decided because you have to decide. And then you have the things which are spontaneous on the day. And then that's when you, you need to kind of make a decision very quickly, take a Polaroid, have a look, try another something else. I have a quick follow-up question which really relates to that, which is, I mean, obviously you use your watercolours, but we know you for these extremely pumped up palettes. And is that, really yeah, but I mean, does that come from kind of looking at, you know, David Hockney pictures? Oh, yeah. or, I mean, is there, is there a kind of um, a voc a, a, an artistic vocabulary that you're drawing these colours from to an extent, or that, that, that informs them? Yeah, I mean, the, the the fascination with other artists is, is always there and always needs to be fed. And of course, yeah, you are, uh, there's many uh, artistic kind of precedents to these things that I'm, I'm kind of drawing on. But yeah, but I mean, just to be clear, the watercolors that I use are not just like watercolory, they are, they're strong. So uh, it's 
like they're paints, basically. So yeah, they're not soft colors. So yeah, so it's the kind of that combination of it's just blocking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Does that cover it for you? Do we have more questions? I think we have one at the front here. A very, very simple little technique. Yeah, sure. I, I love the inclusion of the silver. I love the inclusion of the silver as your sort of little signature. For, it's, it's super. But you've talked about watercolours, so now I'm ready enough to ask my question. Um, is it silver leaf or is it silver paint? It, it, well, in the prints upstairs, yes. silver ink. Silver ink. Yeah, Excellent. and I, I, I originally planned it to be silver leaf, actually, and I was full steam ahead with that idea. And then um, I spoke to somebody and they said they had these Gary Hume prints that were done with uh, aluminum leaf that were falling apart. And I heard this and I, my heart dropped. And I thought, oh my God. And so I parked my car, got out, and right in front of me was a Gerald Lang print in the window. Uh, the gallery in St. James and I looked at this print, it's a beautiful silver ink, 1968, immaculate, I thought, I've got to do it as ink. But it's one of those things, it's being open to uh, things as they come to you, but um, yeah, it was a good decision. My, my screen printer, when I told him that we'd changed it from silver leaf to silver ink, had a fit, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm used to that. <laughs> Do we, I think we've got time for one final question, have we? Any, have we got one final question? Or are we, or we question last chance. Oh, last chance. Oh, right. Hi. Uh, do you remember any turning point at the beginning of your career when you started developing this distinctive style that many photographers now follow, and the usage of color? When, when did it start and when, what was the turning point when you knew you would follow it? Thank you, thank you. Well, um, weirdly I do, because I, when I was describing my early career, when I sort of just fell into photography, uh, and I was happy to do, you know, what I say I was a bluffer, so if somebody said to me, can you do a portrait, I would say, yes, of course. This is before the internet, when people couldn't check, you know, you just get a portfolio, and that was, you lived and died on your portfolio, but could you do, can you do color? course, can you do black and white? Well, I'm very good at it. You know, um, can you do uh, landscapes? All of these things, and, and you just bluffed your way through all these things. But um, somehow I had an advertising project in Tokyo, and I was in Tokyo um, with the worst jet lag, but that's not that's beside the point. But anyway, I was in Tokyo, and I went to an exhibition of Peter Lindbergh prints uh, in a, a kind of a department store, actually, and. Um, these incredible, huge prints of his, um, beautifully lit in this space. And I came out of there, and I remember coming up on the escalator after coming back to the daylight from having been in this kind of subterranean gallery, thinking, ah, oh, it's just nothing I can do in black and white photography. And in a way that made my mind up, and it has to be color. And, uh, and that, was, that was sort of this kind of, you know, revelation to me as I came up this escalator from Tokyo with jet lag. <laughs> thank you so much and thank you all for your questions. Those were great. Thanks for coming.
Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.